Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I've known Carol Todd uh, for 10 years, and I've spoken with Carol about uh, many issues, many uh, Many developments, criminal and otherwise, they all had to do with kids, or most of them had to do with kids and justice. And yesterday, in a Vancouver courtroom, a jury returned five guilty verdicts against Aidan Colban, extortion, harassment, communication with a young person to commit a sexual offense, and possession and distribution of child pornography. The young person, of course, was Carol's daughter, Amanda, from Port Coquitlam, who took her own life in 2012. And um, Carol has been working very hard for 10 years to create an environment where kids are more safe, certainly online, than they are now and then were for some time. The website uh, you should visit and uh, really pay attention to, please, amandatodlegacy.org. Carol, we talked about so many things over the years, talked to so many people. You've been a, a guest uh, on this program and you've talked to um, other guests and provided them with information live on the air. What was it like for you yesterday in the courtroom when you finally heard this individual, Colban, found guilty? Hi, Roy. Um, Hi. It was more of a surreal experience to know that um, after all these years, um, we were in a courtroom and it all started, the trial started on June the 6th, right? I, I don't I don't know what I was expect for the best in hearing guilty verdicts and when I heard each count read out loud and the four person jury four person saying guilty it was it it was just oh I, I, breathtaking um, there are no words to describe it 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 was just one of those experiences and one that keeps replaying in my head I mean there's lots to that I saw lots that I heard, but that moment is what keeps just running through my head and I see it. And it it's just, I don't know, breathtaking right now. That's, that's my word. Yeah. And guilty of, of all five charges. There was no question. There was no, well, he's not guilty on this charge. He's guilty on all five of them. And that's added to the fact that he was found guilty of similar offenses in the Netherlands. That's right. Um, in 2017, he had a trial against 39 other victims, 78 charges, and he was he was found guilty on, um, I think, most of those charges. And so he got a conviction of a sentencing of 10 years and eight months, which is the maximum that the Dutch judicial judicial system could give. And so he he was still he's still currently serving that time, and with this conviction, it adds more time and it keeps him in prison, which is the ultimate outcome so that he can't get out and reoffend ever like for a, a long while. So yeah, um, glad of, that happened. One of the things when you and I spoke earlier today off the air, um, one of the things that you mentioned, and I think it's so critically important is that this can't be a situation where it's making headline news today and will for a few days and then people get on to other things. This is significant, a significant development. It has to be taken seriously. 
The individual component parts have to be dealt with. Parents have to be aware. Young people have to be made aware. And it's, 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 it's a step forward. It's an opportunity to provide an education and provide um, uh, reasoning with, with young people not to be exploited. And uh, sextortion is the word, yes? Yes, extorted is the word. Although in the courtroom I heard um, legal counsel for the other side talk about they weren't going to use the word sextortionist to refer to Mr. Coban. Um, and and I, I, for me, I just sort of shook my head. And if sextortion isn't a word that's used in the criminal code, um, it should be because... 12 years ago when this started happening with Amanda and 10 years ago after she died and, and eight years ago when Mr. Coban was first arrested, um, the platform, the landscape of, of technology use in kids and predators was, I would say, different. We, we didn't know the word sextortion existed. And now here we are in 2022 and in my um, news alerts, all I see is sextortion and the FBI is putting out alerts and warnings to young people and parents. Um, the RCMP is. Um, these organizations that deal with the safety of, of children and online exploitation, they're talking about it. And it's happening to boys and girls. And so previously, it was thought that it was a, a, a girl victimization situation. But it's happening to girls and boys. So there needs to be a conversation there needs to be more awareness um adults parents law enforcement we need to we need to ramp it up talk about it more explain it so that we can talk to our young people about the protection they need to think about when they're online and and i have nothing wrong i have no problems with technology and and being online but we need to we need to really think about privacy, what we share, um, who's at the other end, um, and, and all those things that lead to the exploitation of a, of a person, right? Um, and then the next step is if you are being exploited, if you did share that image, if you did take that, if you did talk to someone that, you know, turns out wasn't a, is a bad person, then what do you do next? You have to, you yes. have to talk to someone, you have to tell yes. You're a young person, you tell your parents, trusted adult, you report it to the RCMP with the support of an adult, right? And so now we know this this case of Amanda's is is precedent setting in yeah. in at least our country. Um, and now they can use it as case law. And if if someone's reporting it to the police and the police say we can't do anything, I call bullshit. Yeah, no, <laughs> things can, things can be done. Things have to be done. You know, uh, language is evolving constantly. Technology is creating this language evolution. So exploitation is just a natural evolution of this technological language, and it has to do with young people, or sometimes not so young people, being uh, sexually exploited online. And kids are particularly vulnerable. They're the ones who, uh, who need the protection. They're the ones who need the knowledge. And going forward, and to honor Amanda's memory, this has to be taken very seriously, and what you're doing has to be taken very seriously. And uh, parents need to take advantage of the opportunity. If they are afraid of uh, perhaps exposing they don't know that much about technology to their kids, doesn't matter. Make sure that you're the leaders in the family. You take the lead. 
Uh, Carol, the Crown Attorney pointed out uh, to the jury, as I understand it in closing arguments, that there were hard drives that were seized from Coban's home, and they, those hard drives had uh, connections to your to your daughter Amanda. So how that doesn't how that doesn't qualify as at least a lead towards exploitation? I have no idea. Yeah, there were seven hard drives that were um, found, um, and they and the Dutch police investigated all of them. Of course. Um, in the trial in 2017, that's when the investigation, well, in 20, a covert operation, and Mr. Coban was um, one of their, the lead suspects. So they did a whole undercover operation to to find and, and uh, get information from all these. And then when the Canadian trial wasn't like, investigation was announced um the dutch worked with the canadians rcmp in order to um share that information and there were files left like they found fragments of files in mr coban's computer hard drives with amanda's name on it however those files ended up being empty there was only fragments of conversation and videos specific ones and so that became circumstantial because mm-hmm. it wasn't direct so that's the part that can really worried me in um for the jury to determine right if it if it's really enough evidence to make him guilty on those charges of child pornography um which of course they the jury came up with guilty so i'm so happy with that but i have to honestly say those are the ones that really worried me yeah, and the ju- the jury. Uh, I understand. I understand that concern you would have. The jury came down with its verdicts very, very quickly. There was no delay. So. It was. It was. They on Friday. The judge, Evelyn, um, put a charge out to the jury. Uh, that ended at about two thirty, and at two thirty-seven, the jury was dismissed to start deliberating. Um, and they deliberated until about 10 p.m. that night and then came back on Saturday morning at 9.30. Um, the jury had a question and it was answered by the courts. And then um, I went out along with everyone else, exited the courtroom to get some fresh air. And within three minutes, we were asked to come back in because the jury had a verdict. So um, it was very, very fast. Uh, we didn't expect it to be that fast. We thought that they'd still be deliberating today, Sunday. Um, and I was talking to some other reporters, and they were amazed that the jury came back so quickly. So um, yeah, it was it was in a blink of a like. There were some reporters that I talked to that couldn't even get there in time, right? Because no one was expecting it. Yeah, you know when uh, when the story of the guilty verdicts came down yesterday afternoon. I just started thinking about Amanda. Never met her, obviously. Talked to you about her on a number of occasions, obviously, as we've now known each other for 10 years. But I started thinking about your daughter, and I started thinking about how Amanda can be a significant um, facilitator, if you will, for an improvement in the understanding of, the knowledge of, and disposition toward what is online and what is online and is harmful particularly to young people. So so your daughter, and I, I would imagine this probably happened to a lot of people, 
we just started thinking about Amanda and what we remember about her and conversations we've had uh, had with you. Mm. And re- she really can be the facilitator for just remembering what happened and, and your message and, you know, AmandaToddLegacy.org. She can be a facilitator for the, for all of us. Well, she put her story out there before any of us even had a sense it, of all the things she was feeling emotionally right. um, with her YouTube video, right? And she told yeah. her story. So that's her testimony out there. And I hope that during sentencing, we'll, it would be able to be played so that we know her whole story and how she was feeling. So Amanda put her voice out there and she wanted to be heard. Story. So all of us, we're just, we're just following what she wanted when she was alive, right? And I'm sure she would have wanted this in after her passing not to stop. And and we haven't stopped. We've kept going. Um, sextortion wasn't a word in our vocabulary back in, in 2012. Um, it certainly is now, and it's got to be more so. And I, I compare it to we have uh, toolkits. We have, now we have mental health toolkits. We have to have a technology toolkit that we need to, be able to talk to um, our kids about our kids and our students, you know, in our classrooms. And we can't be afraid to talk about it. Like, uh, you know, we talk about um, safe sex and, and drinking and driving with our, with our children, not thinking that they'll go out and do whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a precaution. It's a prevention. And, and that's what's, what's needed yeah, and you're and you're hearing from parents and educators yes. around the world, uh, across this country, yeah. and internationally. They're contacting you, and you've spoken internationally, and you've you've dealt with parents who've said, "Please, we need help." So, uh, talk to us a little bit about that, Carol, because the need is obvious. The need is obvious. I've been many places around the world and had conversations online with parents of, um, you know this has happened to their child. One that particularly stands out um, is a mom I met. Uh, She's from the U.S. I met her about eight or nine years ago at an event. And she has been a strong advocate in talking about this with her children. And she recently messaged me and, and said, because of meeting me and Amanda's story, she's talked to her kids and her, her teenage son came to her uh, not too long ago and told her um, he had done something online and he was being extorted, sexploited online. Um, and, and together they, they went to the police and, and or they dealt with it, right? And she said without Amanda's story and without her conversation, her son wouldn't have, wouldn't have even known, wouldn't have been able to come to her only because kids feel that they're going to get in trouble. And yeah. so my message to adults and parents out there, if your child is coming to you with something, um, keep the emotions aside, the anger, and, and listen and help. Because that, as parents, that's um, what we were made to do in our parenting role, right? Um, getting angry and, and handing a punishment down isn't going to solve the problem. So um, calmness and, and good listening solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, we tell kids uh, if you're at a party somewhere and you've had a couple of drinks uh, and you need a lift home, it doesn't matter whether it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, call, because we'll go. Exactly. Right? 
So, yep. This is, and we can tell kids. We can tell kids not to drink until they're you know nineteen in Canada, um, and, and we can tell kids not to have sex, right? But the percentage are, are they're teenagers. They're young people. They're going to do things. Think of the things that we did as adults when we were younger, right? Without telling our parents, it's going to happen. So that's why it's important just to you know have those ongoing conversations and and build that that trust and communication so that your kids aren't afraid to come to you because they are going to fall into situations where they they can't deal with it like adult problems but a, a youth brain um that's 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 part of what amanda's legacy is all about that's why i've i've kept going on this one because it's it's not just amanda's story it's it's anyone's story it could be anyone's story so yeah this story we're going to talk about right now has gone viral. Montreal mom, living with multiple sclerosis, whose two young sons opened a lemonade stand on their front lawn last weekend to raise money for the MS Society. Everything was going well until a neighbor complained about noise and the police arrived. I spent some time speaking with the mom, Ayanna Massa, a couple of days ago. And uh, Ms. Massa is uh, going to join us now. I just want to tell you this. She sent me a photo of an acknowledgement of a $2,000 donation to the MS Society of Canada from her son. Because as soon as the complaints started and the police arrived and the story became really became a national story, people in Canada started to pay attention. Anna, thank you very much. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Roy. I am doing incredible, and I am just so blessed. How could I not be having the voice that I have? And I feel so blessed for your listeners to give me a chance to... Uh, to be here with you today, so thank you. Yeah, good to have you with us. Tell us a bit about your sons. So, where do I start? Um, obviously, I'm biased because they're my sons, but they are two incredible human beings. They're selfless, they're generous, they're doing something for someone other than themselves. And, um, you know, like my son tells me, he says, you know, I'm doing this not only for you, mommy, but to find a cure for everyone who has MS. So I am just so grateful to have the chance to be their mom. I am, um, I'm just blessed. And truly, you know, Ness is 11. He has autism spectrum disorder. And Ariel is eight. And they're two incredible human beings. And in our home, autism is not a disability. It's a gift. And if you ask him, it just means that he's smart and he thinks differently. And, um, and truly, the support of everyone out there in the community and like you said it's gone viral and it's been so heartwarming i think i spent most of the past two weeks just crying and and just being grateful um you know for all the blessings that we do have yeah so your little guys are on the front lawn with a lemonade stand and the neighborhood's enjoying it and they're letting everybody know they're selling lemonade for for mom so everything's going well until one person complains and then the police arrived. What happened? Yes. So a gentleman, and I'm being very uh, politically correct by saying the word gentleman, um, showed up on the lawn uh, 1045-ish in the morning this past Saturday and um, started calling the kids little mother effers. And we're talking about someone, you know, if I would have to guess, early 60s. So at this point, not very politely, I asked him to get off my property. 
And he said he would call the cops. And uh, the cops showed up. The first police showed up um, 15 minutes later. And uh, I was threatened with arrest. I was told that my kids were selling lemonade on the street, though they were not. They were on our property. Um, And it all escalated from there. It was truly heartbreaking for me because I think that instead of, you know, praising these two young boys who really took the initiative on their own to try and make a difference in the world, um, they were absolutely traumatized and um, to see their mom being threatened with arrest, my 11-year-old son, Ness, was screaming at the police officer saying, so now I'm not going to be able to find a cure. I'm going to have to use this money to bail my mom out. She can't even walk. So, I mean, it really uh, it really escalated, and the police took his name badge off, and I thankfully started recording, and he put it one inch away from my face. And had it been me that had showed that aggression to the officers, I believe certainly that I would have at least been maced or shot, if nothing else. Um, This did cause an outrage, an outcry from the community on a national level. And I just want to say that, um, you know, the 99% of everyone all over have been an incredible support. The 1% has been telling me to go kill myself. Yeah, I don't know where those people come from. My sons, with their own debit card, made the donation from last weekend. Yeah, I saw you sent me. You sent me the. Uh, I did a photo of their receipt. I saw that. Yeah. And I want to say that my kids are not trust fund babies. They have eighty dollars in their account, and they refuse to keep even a dollar for themselves because they want to make sure that in our lifetime we do find a cure, and not only for mommy. They did it in honor of mommy for sure, because unfortunately, when you get diagnosed with MS, it's not only the person who gets the diagnosis that suffers it's a whole family that suffers it's the whole village that's around these yeah. people that suffer and so i have to say that i'm truly blessed and i'm so grateful and these kids have taught me so much and um, i'm grateful that i got the chance to be their mom in this lifetime wow they sound like terrific little guys and people were driving you told me all the way from quebec city to montreal just to meet them Absolutely. and to buy some lemonade Yes. And, That's fantastic. And some people didn't even want lemonade. I mean, just now I took a couple of minutes because the lemonade stand is on. Uh, yesterday they raised $1,270. Well, a week later, eh? And, yeah, and, and today they're selling lemonade right now as we speak. Um, so... You know, for everybody that's contributing, for everybody that's sending me these beautiful messages of support, people have been sending e-transfers to support the boys. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm so grateful and I'm so humbled that all of you have gathered around my boys and around our family, and I will be forever indebted to all of you. I want to share with our listeners, uh, your boys have their own email address, so you sent this to me. I want to tell our listeners across the country. It's LemonadeBoys at Yahoo.com, LemonadeBoys at Yahoo.com, and there's a password, and the password is uh, really sneaky. It's Lemonade. So <laughs> uh, this is a, it's, it really is a touching story. It's a heartwarming story. Your kids have almost, uh, you know, they've generated around $4,000, maybe more, for, for, for MS research and uh, in honor of their mom. Now, we have about a minute. Uh, one, police are saying that they, well, they're, they're arguing that he, they didn't approach it that way. Have they have they come to talk to you or apologize at all? Absolutely not. They've actually issued a statement in the press and uh, in the media 
saying that are, they are refusing to apologize. What I said is that the only thing I'm asking is for them to issue an apology to my boys because the story is not about me. There are a lot of people suffering in the world. I am not, you know, more special or uh, more deserving than anyone else. And I'm asking the SDVM to make a donation in honor of my boys to the Multiple Sclerosis Society directly, which they've refused to do categorically. And, um, and so we'll see where this goes. Unfortunately for them, I do have the videos. I was smart enough to start filming. But again, I think that the focus needs to be on, on how incredible and how selfless what these boys are doing right. is. And again, I just want to thank everyone for, um, you know, for all their support. And thank you, Roy, for being such a supporter of doing what's right and being a right fighter. And I think we need more people like you in this world. Well, thank you. But it's it's about your kids, what they did for mom, and it's about Canadians, people across this country. In Quebec, people came to see you. The rest of the country very interested in getting engaged. Again, the email for the boys is lemonadeboys at yahoo.com. Lemonadeboys at yahoo.com. Password is lemonade. Ayana, thank you very much. Uh, all the very best to you. Your kids are terrific, but you, you know what? They're doing it for their mom because their mom's great to them. Thank you so much. May God bless you and may God bless all your listeners. And to everyone again, thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of the boys. Thank you so much. I wasn't sure I was going to do this story simply because they're so difficult to do. But at the same time, it's something I've been talking about on the air for many years. And I wish uh, I'd received more attention than it does this issue. And the issue is chronic pain. And what happens to chronic pain patients? Roughly 20% of our national population suffers from chronic pain. So you can do the math, 37 million people, 7.4. And chronic pain, we're not talking about somebody having a headache or getting a splinter in their finger or banging their toe against the coffee table. We're talking about the kinds of pains that stop you from living. They stop you from living. I've talked to chronic pain patients. If you listen to this program for many years, you know you've heard them. They're uh, in their beds, on their beds, and they can't go anywhere. They can't do anything, nothing, because they're in such agony. The Canadian uh, or the Chronic Pain Association of Canada did a survey, and uh, they've released the results just quite recently. And they found, let me just read to you, doctors have become even more active in force tapering their patients off opiate medications despite warnings from some of their regulators to not do so, Ontario, B.C., and Alberta. A third of patients in 2019 reported being forced tapered compared to 44.4% this year. Um, life has become even more difficult for patients as they report a 23.8% jump in their pain levels, a 22.3% increase in their level of disability, and a 29.3% decline in their overall quality of life. Listen to this. There was a two-thirds increase in patients reporting that they were considering suicide, 38.9% to 64.4%, and almost a three-quarter increase in suicide attempts, 5.4, went up to 9.3%. And 5% had already applied for medical assistance in dying, also known as MAID, M-A-I-D. And that is where my guest comes in. Anne-Marie Gatto is a registered social worker. She's a psychotherapist. She deals with chronic pain patients. And Margaret Bristow is her friend. How are you, Anne-Marie? 
it's a very emotional time for me. Roy, you, you hit that on the head when you said uh, these people are in their beds. My friend Maggie has been housebound for about seven years now, unable to leave her apartment. Tell us about her. She's a she's a wonderful woman uh, who I've come come to know over the years. I originally interviewed her. Uh, it's out there on the CPAC YouTube channel. In 2016, she was one of the people who had her opiate medications taken away. Her physician was being shadowed slash chased by the CPSO and um, tried a bunch of other things which didn't work. So the pain physician said, I can no longer help you. I don't have anything to help you. So since that time, the only thing she's wanted to do uh, was to die because she was not able to, to tolerate her level of pain and is not able to tolerate her level of pain. And you wrote a piece about about your friend on the Pain News Network site as yes. well, PNN. Is it dot com? I'm not I'm sure sorry? if it's dot com. Oh. Is it dot com? Do you know? I think so. Okay. I think it's painnewsnetwork.com. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading this. She was born in nineteen fifty nine, mm-hmm. which makes her sixty three. Yes. And she's dying next week. Wednesday, yes, at approximately 2 p.m. She'll be dying at the uh, Brampton Hospital. I, I think it might be called the William Osler Health Center. It's in Brampton, the hospital there. And she applied for this medically, or medical assistance in dying. Three and times. Three times. Yes. Yes. And the first two were flatly denied because that was at a time when they had the criterion that your natural death was reasonably foreseeable, which she did not because she doesn't have a fatal condition, so she was flatly denied. But then in 2021, when C7 removed that criterion, then she was able to um, to be, um, um, I guess, accepted, approved. So death be, is um, preferable. Yes. Under these circumstances, the circumstances Absolutely. with yes. which she lives to life. Yes. Oh, and people no to think about that. There's no, there's no one coming to help her. There's no one coming to do anything. So. Just think about that, everybody. Death <laughs> is preferable to life. Now, it, it's the pain issue, right? It's the pain she's living with from conditions, health conditions that she has. Correct, yes. And she was on, uh, I need to understand this, she was on an opioid prescription regimen? She was for for several years, and then in about 2016, she was taken off of it by her pain physician who was being chased around by the CPSO, being investigated, I'm calling it chased around. So he took her off of that and then tried a number of other types of medications, none of which worked, and then he said, well, I'm sorry, I can't can't help you. I I have nothing to help you with. The CPSO being the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. So So the doctor was being... Investigated, uh, investigated yes. for prescribing opioid medications. Correct. And the doctor said, I can't stand this. We've heard this from doctors or patients before. I can't, I can't take a risk of losing my license, so I'm taking you off your, your pain meds. Yeah? Correct. Correct, yes. Did they try anything else? Uh, they did try. Uh, it was a him. So he did try some other medications, not opiate medications, just other medications who, I guess, sometimes help other people. But... Her pain is quite severe, and it's nonstop, and there was there was nothing to help her. We and couldn't op- find anything. And, and Anne-Marie, the opioid pain medications did help, yes? I, I don't know. Did they? That's what she said. 
Okay. You can hear the interview on uh, on the YouTube channel. Okay. So she said she was getting some pain relief, but then when that was taken away, there was there was nothing for pain relief. It is stunning, really, because in British Columbia, the rule now is, if you have a small amount of illicit drugs for personal use, and you have uh, an addiction, I'm not sure if the addiction is part of the equation, but if you have a mm-hmm. small amount of illicit drugs, you're not going to be criminally charged. But for chronic pain patients who require opioid pain medications in order to keep their quality of life manageable and not be in agony 24 hours a day, they're the ones who are being arbitrarily taken off, tapered off, or having their opioid medications removed. In some cases, after many, many years of very successful treatment and no overuse, you and I both know, he was on this program, a former police officer and member of Canada's military who was in Oakville, Ontario. Bless him. Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace. He was a guest on this program. He was 76 years of age, and he was forced tapered off his pain meds. And he, Mr. Wallace said to me one day, I just want enough so that I can go to my daughter's wedding. Just give me some pain meds back. You've taken them away from me. Give them back to me so that I can go to my daughter's wedding. They wouldn't do it, from what he told me. So what do we take away from this, Anne-Marie? I don't, I don't know where this is going. I mean, Maggie is not my first friend. I lost another friend in January via maid, and I have two other friends who have submitted their applications, which they're pending. So w- what does this mean? Like, I, I never had a problem with maid, and I don't. I would like to have that choice. Yeah, but maid cannot be seen as a treatment. It's not a treatment for chronic pain patients. It's death. It's death. There's no coming back. And I don't know if, if you knew this, but it creeps me out to know that uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office looked at this um, cost analysis pre and post C7, and they found that it would save hundreds of millions of dollars to provide made to chronics such as myself than to provide health care. Are you serious? I'm serious. It's online. Anyone can access it. It's called Cost Estimate for Bill C7, Medical Assistance in Dying. So it's it's relatively inexpensive to um, to end someone's life via maid. They approximate it at about twenty three hundred dollars, and the approximate savings per province per year was about eighty seven million dollars per province, if I understand the document to be correct. Going back to this uh, Chronic Pain Association of Canada survey, yes, patients reported that they received poor treatment from pharmacists and in the ER to add to the problems they had with their regular physicians, a whopping increase of 38.8% reported they were not properly treated in the ER, while pharmacists refused to renew their prescriptions until the very day they were due, even if they would be close closed on the due date. Mm-hmm. And that increased by 39.5%. Um, as a result, 51.5% more patients desperate with pain obtained their medications from street dealers. Correct. I have a dear friend who, um, who was um, cut off of everything. Her pain physician was just basically chased out of practice altogether. No one would accept her. And um, she ended up going down the street to the, um, literally down the street to the street drug dealer and um, trying to obtain help from from that source. 
I interviewed um, a guest in the United States a few years ago, maybe three, four years, discussing at that. And I was told, I think this was on the air, it might have been off the air. I've done so many of these stories. But there was a woman who had been a chronic pain patient who'd been refused, just completely cut off her meds. Mm-hmm. And she made the acquaintance of a drug dealer who found out about her situation. Now, I can't prove this story. I have no proof of it. But this is what I was told by somebody who was, I, I think it was a guest on the show, said uh, the drug dealer had taken uh, pity on her and was, had become her, quote, doctor and wasn't charging her. Oh, how generous. What does that say? Anne-Marie, what do you want to say about all of this? You, 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 this is what you work with people who, who were massively overcome with chronic pain. You deal with it yourself. I do. And for over 30 years. And so in all that time, I've come to have a lot of friends and now (laughs) I'm losing my friends because we have this phenomenon now that a doctor, and I, I wrote about this, it's so perverse. A doctor will provide you opiate medication so that you're able to get out of your house and into a car and able to make the trip to the hospital so that your life can be ended. However, no one will help you to live that life. So now we have doctors who are quite willing to help you to die, but not willing to help you to live. Yeah. You wrap your head around that. How does anyone? Well, I've told the story when my wife was uh, dying of cancer and a very invasive and very painful cancer. The doctors prescribed, or the the doctor in charge, prescribed um, opioid pain medication for her, but in such a dosage that it might have, I've said this before, and I don't, I'm not saying this jokingly, it might have helped the seven-pound Yorkie we had, but it wasn't going to be enough for her. And that very quickly became evident. And uh, I'm very protective of people I care about. And so that doctor and I had a conversation. And uh, I will give him credit because he changed the prescription. But if I hadn't stood up for my wife, who knows? Is it getting better or not? It's getting worse. And if you try to stand up for yourself, if you try to advocate for yourself and speak up as you did on behalf of your wife, but try to do that for yourself, then you get even more quickly labeled as a drug seeker. See, this is drug seeking behavior. All you want is all you want is this. All you want is medication. I've heard that. So if you go to the ER and you say, I'm a chronic pain patient, I'm in massive pain, and I need help, or you're a drug seeker. Not always, not not 100% of the time, right? But often enough. Often enough, or you're just as likely to get ushered out the door by some burly uh, security guard. They'll just call security, and security will throw you out of the hospital. More than 7 million people in this country are living with chronic pain, and you can check the Chronic Pain Association's website, cpac.ca. And... um, What's the, uh, what, where is it on YouTube? Where's the, where's the story of Margaret and you? Oh, there's a CPAC YouTube channel. So go to YouTube, um, type in Chronic Pain Association of Canada, okay. and you'll find her, her interview there. Anyone can hear it. Also, if you want to find the, um, the, the cost analysis, that's online. Anyone can find that as well. And that's on, you, on that same channel? 
No, that's um, you can just Google that cost estimate for Bill C-7 medical assistance in dying. So they've done a, a cost analysis pre-C-7 and post-C-7 and, and uh, to find out that it would save hundreds of millions of dollars to to end okay. people's lives via maid rather than care for them as chronics. Okay. As that's what I call myself. Eric Edmondson is the CEO of Pivot Airlines, charter airline in this country. You know the story. We've talked to Mr. Edmondson several times. His crew is in the Dominican Republic. They've been threatened with death by the head of a prison gang. And uh, the prosecutors in the Dominican Republic want bail to be rescinded for the Pivot crew and have them sent back to prison where the, that fate may very well await them. What is the Canadian government doing? Eric, thank you for coming back on the program. Do I have this correctly? I mean, is the status is is the situation status quo? It is, Roy. Thanks for having me back and your continued interest in the story. It uh, it is status quo, and that's part of the problem that uh, not much is happening for uh, for our crew, and, and time continues to march on. Yeah, and they, for the listeners who haven't heard this before, they found a rather large amount of cocaine or illicit drugs on the aircraft and reported it and uh, thought that that would be it. The authorities knew about it. They reported it to the RCMP in Canada. The Dominican Republic uh, authorities knew about it, and then they're the ones who got arrested. Yes? That was the that's, sequence. That, that's correct, Roy. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, even more, as we finish our investigation that Pivot funded through uh, an international investigative firm called Guidepost Solutions, um, we, we presented... Uh, an abundance of evidence that our crew was not involved in this at all. Um, and further, we now have evidence uh, coming through the legal system that uh, further cements that case. And, and you know, to be honest, I don't think there's anyone in the Dominican uh, judiciary or legal system that thinks our crew is involved. I, it's, it's close to being, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a narco state, but it's close to being a narco state. Part of the problem is these people uh, simply reported a crime in progress, and the Dominican uh, legal system, which is based on Napoleonic law, does not have um, protections for witnesses or whistleblower protection, and even a little bit more scary than that, they don't have protections for the prosecutors when they're trying to prosecute organized crime. So it's a a very tenuous situation if you're in the Dominican and you see a, a crime in progress and you report it. Uh, you have to know that the prosecutor themselves may not be protected by law if they choose to, to prosecute who is actually involved, if that was uh, organized crime. Oh, sounds, so, of course, they're going to choose you. Yeah, it sounds like Colombia in the days of Escobar. Um, so how seriously is this death threat by this leader of a prison gang to be taken, Eric? Well, our, our crew felt the day that they were ultimately released that it was their last night. Uh, the judge in releasing them on bail uh, made it public that these people were uh, informants, that they uh, blew the whistle on this drug shipment, and they were being housed in a prison solely for narco criminals. That's a bad place to be if you're riding on narco I'd say. criminals. I'd say. And, yeah, so the, the inside of the, the jails, the, the, that prison, is not run by guards. There's no employees inside. It's run by prison inmates that climb the ladder through through all sorts of uh, means that, you know, would probably turn most people's stomach. And that person 
somehow ended up in the uh, prosecutor's office the last time our crew had to check in for their biweekly um, uh, check-in at the, at the courthouse. And that was the day before they were to go back in front of this bail hearing to, to throw them back into jail. And that, that uh, prison boss came up to the captain and said, pilot, pilot, I'll see you very soon. And that shook our, our people to the very core. What uh, Last time we talked, the federal government of this country had done essentially, well, nothing. Have they done anything else? Have they done anything at all? It's, it's tough to tell how the government works. We've had really good communication with the government. What we haven't seen is any action. Uh, we we've really uh, have been pounding our head against the wall trying to get just a little bit of, of movement on this file, something to tell us that they're taking it seriously, that they're looking for ways to, to um, you know, a, a legal way to maneuver our people so they can come home. We think the lack of whistleblower protection protection in the legislation of uh, the Dominican allows that opening. But to be honest, I don't think the Canadian government has even cracked that door to see if it's viable. Or not. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.